Amen. Good morning, church. It's good to see each of you here today. Kind of a organizing scripture or a great memory verse for this series of messages that we've been doing is found in 1 Corinthians 1.18. and mentioned it each week, but I want to share it with you again right now. Paul writes, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The message, the good news, has the power to change a human life. This morning, I've asked Sarah Caldwell to come and, um, and share with us her testimony. I'm going to ask her some questions. She's going to tell us something of her story, uh, how the good news affected her life. She is wife to Aaron, mother to Cannon, and would you join me in welcoming Sarah to the platform this morning. Sarah, we, uh, uh, we've gotten to know each other the last few years, and uh, I was, I was uh, privileged to be a part of y'all's wedding, and, and uh, you know, my street that I live on, Erin Street, is named after her husband. Now, how many people get to say that and uh, got to be a part of their wedding, do their wedding? Sarah, uh, tell us just a little bit how you came to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Well, I um, was eight years old at Baptist Youth Camp. And I felt that familiar tug, which I now know is conviction. And that night I asked the Lord to come into my heart. Um, after that, I went home after camp and not much changed. I was a kid and I did kid things. And um, I, don't, I wouldn't say that I really just started bearing fruit at the age of eight. I wouldn't say that I was really pouring into anybody at that time. So um, after that, I went through high school and I was pretty lukewarm. I was really, um, my moral compass was pretty well calibrated. I didn't really do anything overly shocking that any other teenager didn't do. Um, but like I said, I was very lukewarm. I didn't really know what it meant to have that hunger for an intimate relationship with Jesus. And I even went through college that way. And it wasn't until um, Aaron and I married in 2014 that I kind of felt like, okay, it was time to get it together. You know, it was time to be the good Christian wife. I was going to tithe and go to church on Sunday and do all of that. And, and through that, um, God really rede redirected me um, to where I really started wanting to exude his character through my life so I could pour into others. Well, that, you know, so many of the people sitting here probably can identify with that story. How many of y'all were saved as children? eight years old in that range. Yeah, a lot of folks were. Uh, how many of you just immediately started living like the Apostle Paul? <laughs> Not very many, and so a lot, a lot of folks can identify with that, Sarah. Sarah, how has Jesus worked in your life? You said a real turning point was when you and Aaron married. How has Jesus been working in your life, and um, what effect is he having on you now? After we married and I decided to be the good Christian wife, you know, that was my decision, not anything that was really led until um, he did start kind of chiseling on my heart and molding me into the woman that I am now. And over the past year, well, obviously in 2016, we were pregnant with Cannon and picture perfect pregnancy. Everything was normal. And as many of y'all know, we went through our entire pregnancy completely unaware of just how much God was going to rock our world after we had Cannon. So we had Cannon and um, I was going to raise a good Christian child and pour into him and do all of those things like my parents did for me 
and obviously he had medical issues. He has chronic kidney disease, so we really struggled after that with um, a lot of why me, why now, what, what kind of glory is coming to you from this because it seems all very dark, seems all very um, shadowed by, by Satan in my heart, to be honest with you. You know, I, I was in my Bible and I was reading the scripture, but it wasn't resonating with me because my baby was essentially, you know, in bed and I didn't know if we were going to make it day by day. So after that, um, as we stayed in the hospital, God really just ministered through me through, ministered to me through the nurses and um, my family, my husband, um, and really let me lean on him through that. And I just kind of got this hunger and this, um, this, this longing to, to really know him more intimately. And over the past year, I've been able to do that and been able to kind of know what it felt like to walk with him daily. And I didn't realize what I was missing until I started having that relationship with him. And now I, can, I, I know the sound of his voice. And I, I know what it sounds like for him to weigh heavy on my heart and speak to me in small things and in big things. And that's a blessing beyond itself to be able to know that. Amen. Well, praise the Lord. How many of y'all are thankful for what God has done in Sarah's life? Let's, let's pray together and let's pray for Aaron and Sarah. Father, we are so thankful to you for the way that you reach down. And even when we're not aware of how desperately we need you, you have a way of opening our eyes to our need. And Father, I thank you for the work that you have done in Aaron and Sarah's lives over the past year and the work that you were doing for years before that. We thank you for their devotion to one another, their, their love for their son and the way they care for him. We thank you most of all, Lord, for the way that you have loved them, and in return, they have reciprocated your love. We pray you would continue, Lord, to deepen their walk with you, fill them with faith, fill them with deep assurance and confidence as you continue to work in healing Canon and changing his life. We look forward to the day when Canon will testify of how you have changed his life. Father, we know that there are those sitting here who hear my voice who need you. We pray, Almighty God, that at the end of this service, as we study your word together, that their life might be changed forever. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Sarah, very, very much. Appreciate it. The Gospel on Your Forgiveness. That's the title of this morning's message, The Gospel on Your Forgiveness. Each week, we're looking at a different encounter Jesus had with someone and how he was not only telling them good news, he was good news for them. And this morning we want to look specifically at the life of a woman found in Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. And I would encourage you to find that passage of Scripture. Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. As we think about forgiveness today, Increasingly, the world is beginning to sense that there's a need to practice forgiveness, to give forgiveness. I've been doing some reading this week, and um, there are people who don't know Christ, who have nothing to do with Christianity, who are advocating the need for people to forgive one another. They have found that when people refuse to forgive and bitterness sets in, that it affects everything from blood pressure to depression. There are all kinds of physiological effects that people have, not to mention 
the spiritual effect of unforgiveness that we read about in God's Word. Today, we're going to read how forgiveness changed a person's life. Have you been forgiven? Are you conscious of the forgiveness of God in your own life? What makes it really difficult is you and I are surrounded by media, surrounded by a world that says you don't need to forgive, that your best answer is to hold a grudge, get vengeance when you can. Scientists have actually measured um, what goes on in a human brain just before someone gets revenge, and the pleasure centers light up. In other words, it's our human uh, sinfulness that, that gets excitement or some pleasure when someone gets what we think they deserve, especially at our hand. And so the world is all about revenge. The world's about vengeance. And so it's very difficult to experience forgiveness when we're surrounded in a world like that. You may have encountered that, maybe experiencing that now in your life, where you did something that hurt someone and you are sincerely sorry. You have asked forgiveness more than once. And for whatever reason, that person has not mirrored the forgiveness of God to you. They refuse to extend that forgiveness to you. And as a consequence of that, you are wondering, am I forgiven? Perhaps you did something that was so dark, so wrong in your mind that you've not even been able to forgive yourself. So how can you experience forgiveness? Well, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is that forgiveness can be experienced. It is something that is offered to us through Jesus Christ. I want to read this passage of Scripture, Luke chapter 7. This is the third individual we have studied in this chapter so far in this series. And in chapter uh, 7, verse 36, this is what we read takes place. Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him, weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself, now he didn't say this out loud, saying, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, so he's looking at the woman, and he's speaking to Simon. Listen to what he says. Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, 
are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Simon invites Jesus to his house. I don't know why. I don't know what was in his heart, what he was thinking. Jesus has been performing miracles. He has been teaching, and he's a religious, intelligent, smart guy. Perhaps he just wanted to have the intellectual stimulation, having a a dinner guest that he could talk to. We don't know. We're not told. But he invites Jesus to come, and he, he avoids every common courtesy you could give to a house guest in that day and time. You know, it would be similar to having someone over to your house, setting a great table, and giving them a TV tree, tray to go sit with the kids or something. I don't know. But, I mean, he just avoided every kind of courtesy that you can imagine. In that day and time, if you had a formal dinner, most likely you held it in a courtyard in the center of your house. It was open um, to the public in the sense that people could come in and listen to the conversation. It was like an um, uh, open discussion. People could come and listen, see what was happening, hear what was being said, so people could come and go. And in the context of this table, they were probably lying down. In that day and time, they didn't have tables and chairs like we do. They reclined when they ate, usually leaning on their left arm and eating with their right hand, and their feet were extended behind them away from the table. And, um, and it was at that moment that this woman had heard that Jesus was there. She comes in. She stands at his feet. Jesus isn't looking at her. She's weeping. Weeping so much that her tears become sufficient to wipe the dust from his feet. She kisses his feet. She can't stop. She takes this very valuable oil used as perfume that normally a guest would provide be provided by their host, and maybe put it on their head, freshen up, wash your hands, you know, things we do before dinner. And instead of putting it on his head, she anoints his feet. That was bizarre to the people that knew the customs and that sort of thing. That was, that was odd. And it's at this moment that Simon begins to have this thought in his mind, and he's thinking to himself, if this guy was a prophet, if he, if he knew some things, He would know who this woman was, what kind of woman she was. He would know her past. And it doesn't say this in the text, but the implication is if he he knew who she was and knew what she was, he would somehow run her off. He would shoo her away. He would reject the grace that she was giving to him at that moment. And the irony of the situation is that while he is focused on her and what kind of woman that she is, Jesus, very clearly in the text, is focused on him and what kind of man he is. And it raises a really interesting question that I think you and I need to ask ourselves. Can Jesus love a self-righteous, unforgiving, haughty, judgmental man? Well, he went to his house. 
And the whole discussion that's un- unfolding in this text is being directed at him. And it seems very clearly that Jesus cares even about this guy. And as you and I look at him, we may think he's obnoxious. We may think it's disturbing that this guy um, is acting that way, thinking that way, behaving that way. And yet Jesus goes to great lengths to try to make a point with him and open up his heart. Jesus tells a story to expose Simon's heart to himself. He says, Simon, I got something to say to you. He said, there's a guy that has two debtors. One debtor owes 500 denarii. Denarii was typically a day's wage. So if you can imagine a debt of 500 days worth of wages, then you're thinking well over a year's worth of work just to pay back the debt. The other guy owes 50 denarii or 50 days wages. And he says, these two men have the same debt, uh, uh, similar debts, but one is 10 times larger than the other. And, and the lender decides to forgive the debt for both. Who's going to be more in love with the lender, Jesus asked. Who's going to be more excited about that forgiveness? The size of the debt that's used in the text, I believe, is describing our sense of our own debt. If I'm conscious of owing a great debt and suddenly that debt is forgiven, it's going to affect me. And so my awareness of my debt is really critical in this text. I brought with me a couple of jars. I didn't put anything in them. I guess I could put something nasty, nasty in them, but I didn't because they're my wife's jars and she's going to want them back. Okay, big jar, little jar. And Jesus says, There's a, there are two debtors here. One guy has a much larger debt than the other one. And, and the thing that really is going to provoke a reaction is the fact that the guy that owes the large debt knows that he owes a large debt. It's big. And he's conscious of it. The other one, not so much. Not as big a debt. Jesus says when that debt is forgiven, that awareness of the guilt that suddenly is removed, it affects a person. It affects them. It affects them at the core of who they are. It affects the way they see Jesus. It affects the way they see themselves. It affects the way they see other people. There's a story Jesus tells later on, a parable, in in Luke 18. You don't have to turn there. But I wonder if he's thinking of Simon in Luke 7 when he tells the story in Luke 18. He says two guys go to pray. One is a Pharisee. The other is a tax collector. The Pharisee prays like this. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. That's how he's praying. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. The tax collector, meanwhile, he's standing afar off. He's not even close. He's standing way back, and this is what his prayer is. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, as Jesus goes on and teaches about that passage, he says that the consciousness of guilt makes a difference in how those men are responding to God. Makes a difference in how that Pharisee is looking at the tax collector. He's doing this comparison thing. Well, my sins aren't as big as their sins. You know, when we feel that guilt, when we feel that 
that responsibility for our sin, we react to it in different ways. Some of us just deny it. We ignore it. We just push it down. Yeah, 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 I know, and I'm just not going to think about that. We, we just suppress it. We push it away. Other people, when faced with their guilt, their responsibility, we excuse ourselves. And one of the great ways we excuse ourselves is by comparing ourselves to others. Well, at least I don't go out and kill somebody. You know, at least I don't do this. At least I'm not like that one over there or that one over there. And so even though I'm guilty because I compare myself, I don't deal with it. I don't act with it. I justify it. I make excuses. And um, I know what's wrong with everybody else. And that helps keep me in a safe place. And, um, and so I don't, I don't ever experience forgiveness because I never admit my guilt. Another way we handle guilt is we blame other people, especially when there's two people involved or more. Well, yeah, I did this, but they did this. And I don't deal with my guilt because I blame them for the whole scenario. And so we balance guilt with blame, and we've talked about that here before. I may feel so guilty, however, because of this. Maybe those things don't work. Then I go see somebody. Maybe I have to go talk to somebody, talk to a counselor, and they tell me, well, you need to do this, you need to do that, and they try to help me psychologically deal with my guilt. But the problem is, is that guilt, real guilt, is a function of the human spirit. You and I are composed of a body, a soul, and a spirit. Uh, the Bible talks about that. Body, soul, and spirit. And when I deal with just the mind, I'm just dealing with the soul. When I even deal just with emotions, I'm dealing with the soul. The human spirit is that part of me that can have contact with God. Did you know that part of the function of the Holy Spirit is that he exists on planet Earth to convict us about sin and, and to convince us about sin? And so I can run from my guilt. I can try to explain away from my guilt. I can try to justify my guilt. I can try to blame others for my guilt. But because guilt is a spiritual issue, i got to deal with it in a spiritual way. And the Lord Jesus is making that really clear to this man, Simon. So my sense of forgiveness changes the way that I respond to others, especially changes the way I respond to the person I owe the debt to. But it also affects the way I respond to other debtors, the way I look at them, the way I think about them, the way I evaluate them. The key verse I want us to look at this morning is found in verse 47. Luke 7, verse 47. Here's what it says. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Now before we dive into this verse and look at the gospel on forgiveness, I want you to notice something about this verse. She says, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. Some people have read that verse. I've read a number of commentators in the past who look at that and say, well, it sounds like that her loving Jesus was the grounds, the basis, or the cause of her forgiveness. She loved Jesus. Jesus forgave her. Listen to it again. It says, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. Yeah, it sounds like, for she loved much, so her sins were forgiven. And, um, and you couldn't be more mistaken to take that position. 
Um, and there's a couple reasons why. One is the story itself. The story itself is about two people who owed a debt, and when they were forgiven, they, who loved the most? I mean, that was the question, right? So, so, so loving is not a cause, it's an evidence of forgiveness. Am I conscious that I'm forgiven? Am I loving? Do I understand the great debt I've been forgiven? Am I loving? And in fact, the rest of the verse, he makes it really clear, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. My consciousness of guilt, my consciousness of debt affects my love for God, affects my love for others. You say, well, pastor, why are we, why are we talking about that? Because Jesus is driving this home. Simon, you saw this woman come in, you saw all this stuff that she was doing, and in your mind you were thinking, boy, if I knew what she was like, I would drive her away. But you missed the whole point, Simon. This lady was loving me. This woman was loving me because she had experienced the forgiveness of God. When someone who is very guilty, not just... um, on paper, but in their heart. When a guilty person encounters the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, Jesus is saying, the way you know that that has really happened is by how much they love me. How much they love other debtors. How much they are willing to give grace the way they receive grace from me. I say this to a room full of people who most of us, I think, would say we are Christians, that we follow Jesus Christ. Because I think in hundreds of ways, on a weekly basis, if we're not cautious, if we were forced to ask the question, answer the question, am I more like Simon or am I more like this lady? I'm afraid a lot of us, if we were absolutely honest, would say, I think I'm a little bit more like Simon. judgmental looking down on others not associating with other people because they're not my kind of people we need to know the forgiveness that Jesus gives I'm not going to experience that unless I understand my debt Well, let's go through this verse, verse 47, and then there's a couple other verses that follow. And let's see what the good news is about forgiveness. It truly is meant to change everything about you and me. So what is the good news about forgiveness? Let's take it apart. Number one, number one, his forgiveness is comprehensive. His forgiveness is comprehensive. Look at verse 47. Therefore I say to you, her sins which are many, are forgiven. Her sins, which are many, all are forgiven. What is he saying? He's talking about her sins collectively. And all of them are forgiven. When you come to Christ, you put your trust in Jesus and what he did for you on the cross, all your sins are forgiven. Your sins in the past, your sins today, your sins in the future, all of them are forgiven. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, the apostle writes, For Christ also suffered once for sins, all of them. The just for the unjust, that's you and me, that he might bring us to God. And so when he suffered, he suffered for everything in our life 
that caused us to be labeled unjust. All of our sins, he died for one time. He doesn't die again because of what we did today. He doesn't die again for what we're going to do tomorrow. He doesn't die again for what I'm going to do later this week. He died one time for all of our sins. His forgiveness is comprehensive. Because of that, the Apostle Paul would later write in Romans 8.1, For there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. When you belong to Jesus, there is no condemnation, not from God, not from the Father. You may heap it on yourself because you're still trying to make up for what you have done. You can't. Only Christ could pay the price for your sins. Only he could take the penalty your sins deserved. And so his forgiveness is comprehensive. Secondly, his forgiveness is specific. His forgiveness is specific. Again, in verse 47, Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. You see, he calls attention to the fact that it wasn't just all of our sins. There were many sins. He uses the word sin in a plural form so that you and I would understand that when he dies for our sins, he's dying for every individual sin that we have ever committed. Specific sins. Now, how does that help you and I experience forgiveness? Because there's no sin you can think of. No sin that you have done so bad that isn't covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. None. If one single sin was uncovered, you would spend eternity separated from the Father. And so he dies for sins specifically. Think about the worst sin you've ever done. It may be something some of you are still beating yourself for, still living under a cloud because of something that you did, something that may have happened years ago, something that was decades ago. And Jesus died for your sins specifically. He died for that sin. That sin, there's no punishment remaining for that sin. It's gone. In 1 Peter 2.24, one of my favorite verses, you hear me quoted all the time. It says, who himself bore our sins, every individual sin, plural, bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. When I share Christ with someone, not always, but especially with children, I have uh, typically been around a desk, I would grab paper clips. When I've shared at a table in a restaurant, I've used salt packets or sugar packets. And I would talk to that individual about how Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree. I said, here's a paper clip or here's a sugar packet. I said, think of one of your sins, just one of them, and, um, and, and name it. And they would name a sin, and I'd put it down in one pile. I'd say, think of another sin. They said, I got it. They put it down in the pile. And we just pile up sins. Just pile it up. What the Bible says is that he bore our sins in his body on the tree, not for sin in general, not for sin as just a concept, but for individual things that you have done that separated you from a holy God. He died for sins specifically. And so his forgiveness is specific. It is applied to every sin in your life. Number three. His forgiveness is permanent. It's permanent. Therefore, I say to you, verse 47, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Are forgiven. Now, what I want you to hear about that verse, I I need to open up the language just a little bit. We have different tenses we use in English. Most, Most commonly, we use past tense, present tense, future tense. Past tense is something that happened in the past. 
Um, this is passive voice, so it's something happening to me. So if I was going to speak in the passive voice in the past, I'd say, I got hit by a car. It happened to me, but it happened in the past. If it's happening in this moment, I would tell you I am being hit by a car. It's not something I'm doing. It's happening to me, but it's in present, present time, present tense. In the future, uh, I step out in the street, I see a car coming. I am going to be hit by a car. You know, that's, that's present tense. It really is. I will be hit. Jesus uses a different tense here. We use it in English, but not very often. It's called a perfect tense. And a perfect tense describes something that's happened in the past. It is complete, finished, with results or consequences abiding in the present. When he says that she's been forgiven, he uses the perfect tense. She has been forgiven in the past. It is a completed action, and the consequence of that is abiding into the present. She's forgiven. Dear friend, if you have ever trusted Jesus Christ from the heart for your salvation, you are forgiven like that. All your sins, every individual sin in the past has been forgiven. It is permanent. Number four, his forgiveness is personal. It is personal. Look at verse 48. Then he said to her. He's not talking to Simon anymore. He says to her, your sins are forgiven. Now, he already said it to Simon about her, but now he says it to her. Your sins are forgiven. Do you know your sins are forgiven? Do you know that when you trusted Christ, that he came to you personally and carried away your sins? And so it's a very personal transaction. And this lady did not see it impersonally, did she? It was very personal to her. And she went to the Savior and loved the Savior because he was the source of her forgiveness. It's offered, forgiveness is offered to the whole world. He offers forgiveness to every person here, but he only gives it to individuals. He only gives it to individuals who respond to him in faith and trust. And then number five, his forgiveness is powerful. His forgiveness is powerful. Verse 50, then he said to woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, that was a common Jewish saying to say to someone, go in peace. It sounds like something sweet, uh, a sentiment, something nice that you would say to somebody. But the word shalom in the Old Testament was describing a state of being in which God's will was perfectly expressed in a human heart or in a village or in a nation. And when he says, go in peace, he's saying, I want you to go in a, in a way of life, in a way of existence where God is ruling in your life, and I want you to stay under his rule. That's really there. Your faith has saved you. And so forgiveness has changed the way that she's going to live the rest of her life. She's not going to live the same way anymore. Why be forgiven for something and then wantonly, willfully just continue doing it? You know, people say, well, I got saved when I was eight, like Sarah did. That means I can go do it whatever I want to. We think, well, I got my ticket punch. I'm going to heaven. Doesn't matter how I live. Listen, you haven't met the forgiveness of Jesus yet. Not like that. That's not, if that's your attitude towards sin, you've never been forgiven. When someone's been forgiven, they love Jesus. They're conscious of their guilt. They are relieved because the weight has been lifted off of them, and it changes the way you live. It changes the way you love. It changes the way you love Jesus. He's not an idea in an old book. Like Sarah described, he's someone she meets with every day. 
It's someone she's come to know personally, someone who is speaking to her, comforting her, assuring her, changing her life, entering her circumstances where her son faces medical testing every, every week of his life. And because of that, because of that, it's become a new kind of love for her. It changes the way I love Jesus. It changes the way I love the people around me. The worst morally corrupt individual that I see when I look at that person, I got to think they need Jesus because I needed Jesus just like them. It takes the same cross to save that person as the cross that saved me. There is no difference. We both need the same Jesus. And so it changes the way I love people. And so if I'm condemning, if I'm judgmental, if I'm looking down, if I'm comparing myself, Dear one, I have not yet experienced the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And it changes the way we see things. What's really interesting to me in this text is after he tells the story, it says in verse 44, he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? You see, he had been thinking to himself, if this guy was a prophet, he would know who this woman was and what kind of woman she was. And, and, and Jesus, of course, knew his thoughts, and he says, Simon, do you see this woman? You think I don't see her, but do you see her? Do you see what kind of woman she is? Do you see what kind of woman she is, and then consequently what kind of man you are? You think you're so good. You think, you think you're so righteous. You think you're such a, a holy person. He said, this woman came in and did for me what any ordinary host would have done, and you didn't do any of it. When I came in, she, you didn't give me any water. She washed my feet with her tears. When I came in, you didn't kiss me. She hadn't stopped kissing my feet. When I came in, you didn't give me anything to anoint my hair to wash up for dinner. She anointed my feet. She was more courteous than you. And you think you're so much better than she is. Do you see this woman? Simon? Forgiven people, Simon. Forgiven people, Simon. They love me. Like this woman loved me. Forgiven people get it. Forgiven people understand the load that's been lifted. In John chapter 3, verse 17, I want to close with this verse. He had said to woman, your faith has saved you. Your faith has saved you. Listen to what what John writes in John 3.17. Now you know John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. But listen to the next two verses. For God did not send his son in the world to condemn the world. By the way, if Jesus wasn't sent to condemn to the world, maybe we aren't sent to condemn the world. But that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Lady, your faith has saved you. You believed that I was the answer. You believed that I could remove your guilt debt. You believed in me. You trusted me. Your faith has saved you. You are no longer condemned. Do you know how great your guilt is? Right now, sitting here right now, 
you understand how great your guilt is? Do you understand that Jesus had to die for your sin? If you were the only person on the planet, he would still have to die for your sin. You say, well, my sin's not that great. He still would have had to die for your sin. It wouldn't be like God came up and said, oh, this one's sin's not so bad. This is the only human being on the planet. Their sin's not so bad. We can give them a pass. No. The blood of Jesus was required for your sin and every other person who sinned on the planet. Do you understand your guilt? It cost Jesus his own life. When you read that story, are you more like Simon? Do you identify more with Simon? Or do you identify more with this sinful lady, as Simon thought of her, this sinful woman? Do you find yourself more and more in love with Jesus every day because of what he has done for you? Do you find yourself more and more miserable, more and more frustrated? Do you find yourself looking at a woman like that? Do you respond with judgment, condemnation, or compassion? Does your heart go out to that individual and say, man, they need Jesus. Boy, I wish they knew my Jesus. Jesus set them free. Jesus, they need to know you. Is that my heart? Or do I think, I hope they move away. I hope they move out of the neighborhood. I hope their kid goes off somewhere else and leaves my kid alone. I mean, what do we do? We see stuff we don't like in our community. What do we do? Do we go out on Facebook or Twitter? And we say, oh, these, these things are going on. They're so terrible. All this stuff is so bad. All these people are so awful. Do we take this, this judgmental posture that we are right and everybody else is wrong? People know when you love them. And people who love, really love, they know the forgiveness of Jesus. It is absolutely impossible for me to, to love others who are different from me or who I maybe think, I don't think they're as good as me or whatever. It's impossible for me to love them unless I understand how much he loved me. John says we love him because he first loved us. Has your debt been lifted? Has your guilt been removed? You say, well, pastor, I hear what you're saying. But pastor, I'm not really that conscious of my guilt and my sin that put Jesus on the cross. I, I got to be honest with you. You know, if you and I were sitting across from each other, you might just look at me and say, Pastor, I really don't feel that intensity, and I, I realize it's a problem. What do I do? Can I ask you just to turn to the Lord and through his Holy Spirit, since he's the one that convinces us of sin and righteousness and judgment, you just say, Lord, would you show me how much you have saved me from? Will you remind me of the cross? I'm not asking you to dig up old sins, but dear one, especially if you were saved like Sarah when you were eight years old, do you realize how much he has forgiven you over the course of your life? 
I, th I believe very strongly Jesus is saying to you and me, if you are unconscious of how much I've forgiven you, you're not going to love me like this lady loved me. And you're really not going to love others. You're going to be a little bit more like Simon. You need him. In just a moment, we're going to stand and sing. The pastors will be standing here at the front. We do this each week. We do it because we want to give you an opportunity to publicly put your trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus said, if you will confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father who is in heaven. He said, but if you deny me before men, I will deny you to my Father. He really said that. And so we want to give you an opportunity to publicly, and what a friendly place to do it in. No one's going to throw rocks at you. No one's going to make fun of you. No one's going to ridicule you. And if they are, they just aren't right with God. And so if you come and you publicly profess your faith in Jesus Christ, you're saying, I don't care what anyone else thinks. I am going to take my stand in Jesus Christ and the good news that I am forgiven through him and him alone. You may have someone in your life that, that uh, won't forgive you or that you're struggling to forgive. And I want to encourage you right now, allow the Holy Spirit to guide you into the next step to take. And if he gives that to you, if you say, Lord, what should I do next? And he says for you what to do next, would you please do it? Don't hesitate. Don't delay. Our human minds, are we, we make so many excuses. Don't hesitate. Don't wait. Respond to him.